What's up, y'all? I got a dance deal for you, Chicago. Hubbard Street Dance heats up the Harris Theater stage with its spring series of joy next week. Now, this is some of the most dynamic, cutting-edge contemporary dance made by the world's leading choreographers right here in Chicago. I'm excited for Echoes of Our Ancestors by Maria Torres, among other creators. But you can only catch it for three performances between May 17th and May 19th. Luckily, CityCast Chicago listeners can get tickets in any section for 20% off using code CityCast online or over the phone. Visit HubbardStreetDance.com for details and use code CityCast. Today on CityCast Chicago, voters will choose the next mayor on April 4th, a little more than a week away. On the ballot, former CPS CEO Paul Vallis and former CPS teacher and CTU organizer Brandon Johnson. Johnson is currently Cook County Board Commissioner for the 1st District, which stretches from the city's west side to suburban Maywood. The commissioner lives with his family in Austin, but we recently caught up with him for an interview at Principal Barber's in North Lawndale. Uh, look, this is the place where I believe our people are at our best. It's where we get to tell the absolute truth. Truth. It's where we are ultimately vulnerable, but it's also a place of accountability, and not in the gotcha accountability, but in the more of the supportive, the supportive nature. This is the best place where you can be loved and supported. Is in a barbershop, a black barbershop. As we sat there, you could see the fatigue of what's been a months-long campaign. That at the start, very few had Johnson as a lead contender. Now he's hoping to be the first black man to lead Chicago in 40 years. It's Monday, March 27th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. I know uh, a little bit of your story, Mm -hmm. right? Growing up in a house with two parents, uh, worked in public service, you're a preacher's kid. Uh, I know that you had siblings, uh, you know, about nine of them. Yeah, yeah, it was was 10 of of us total, yeah. And and you also had foster kids who were inside of your home. When you think about that time growing up outside of the city, what did you know about the city of Chicago? I mean, what I know today, Mm -hmm. you know, look, my family is here. You know, I have cousins who were raised in Cabrini, you know, cousins on the south side. I mean, we frequented the city of Chicago. I mean, weekends, you know, filled with, you know, up and down the block, the three flats that the family owned, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I understood the difference, though, was, you know, I didn't have to apply for my neighborhood school. It was just, it was built in. Um, the infrastructure was solidly um, favorable, you know, towards the day-to-day experience of working people. You know, also recognize, though, that there were, you know, amenities that 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 were a little bit more um, accessible. Right. You know, but I also recognize and understood, though, that, um, you know, the concentration of poverty is a little bit different, you know, growing up, you know, outside of the city, and you know, and that your cousins and, you know, your aunts and uncles, right, are living in more concentrated places, you know, where where, where poverty, um, you know, was. Uh, Again, just more concentrated. Mm-hmm. Growing up on the south side of Chicago, to be honest, I didn't realize that my neighborhood was divested in, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, the people on my block 
took care of each other. We frequented the the mom and pop businesses around our neighborhood. It wasn't until I got older and I started to venture into other neighborhoods that I realized just sort of how deprived of resources we were coming up. As you've raised your family with your wife Stacy on the west side in Austin, how have you come to see how resources are split between the neighborhoods that maybe you grew up in or or that you raise your family in and the neighborhoods that maybe you shop in, Mm. the neighborhoods that you, you meet up with your friends in? Yeah, thank you for that. Well, look, one of the reasons why our children attend schools outside of Austin is because, you know, our children, you know, play instruments, you know, the viola, the cello, the violin. You know, so my oldest son is a is a student at Kenwood because they have an orchestra. Right. So, you know, this is something that, you know, you know, we are regularly aware of. Right. And same thing with, you know, certain programs like, you know, my children are engaged in soccer and swimming, baseball. Um, there aren't as many of those type of programs and opportunities available um, on the west side. So we do, we have, we have to, and even grocery shopping. To your point, we have to venture outside of the neighborhood in order to access and um, you know very basic amenities of life. I mean, even with that sort of dichotomy that you're forced to live, you want you've come up teaching in public schools. Your platform talks about investing in neighborhood schools, but you know as a parent, the decisions that you feel you're forced to make to send your kids outside, I imagine you're not going to tell other parents not to make the same decision. So how do you convince people to stay in their neighborhood schools when you yourself say, mm-hmm. it, you know, it feels like a disservice to my children? Well, we're fighting and and our, our our fight is certainly aspirational. Mm-hmm. This is what this fight is about: is to make sure that there is um, consistency across yeah. the city. This is not a judgment against people who make decisions that they believe are best for their children. What we're saying is that families are being forced to make that decision. It's not a choice. Got it. It's an ultimatum. Um, when you think about um, the the family story that you, you've shared with so many people from your own upbringing to how you're raising your family. One thing I've missed in that conversation is how your family feels about you running for mayor because your choice now has an impact on all of the members of your family. What has been the, the reception to, to your growing candidacy inside your own home? Inside my own home? Yeah, or just, your, just your extended family, family, immediate extended family. family as well. Well, for my immediate family, you know, you know, you know, my children are incredible human beings. I mean, they recognize that their quality of life um, is not disrupted by their father's decision. You know, they have a life that they live. Like, they ain't checking for me every day. They have swim lessons. They got homework, right? They got pizza night. Like, all those things are still in place. You know, my wife is, is, um, is a superb human being, right? So she holds it down, you know, for the family. Um, where there are areas in which obviously my time is extended beyond, you know, the address, you know, but um, she's an incredibly supportive person and, you know, we're good, you know, as far as, you know, my extended family, like, you know, you'll have to FOIA my family text thread. So I'm just going to keep that between my text thread. <laughs> no, they good. I mean, you know, of course, they give me a hard time. They love me. You know, they want to make sure that I'm good. Um, most of their attention is really making sure that Stacy and the three, you know, my children are good. Mm-hmm. They're very supportive. Um, they're very protective, you know, so we're trying to keep them off of social media so nobody gets a, 
attention from a certain element of my family, right? <laughs> I hear you. Um, but you know, they love you know this because they recognize, man, that I'm still who I am. You know, I'm just in a position to run one of the largest economies in the world, but I'm still their brother. Yeah. You know? Every mayoral candidate since Chicago has become has made promises in their campaigns to deliver uh, for businesses, to deliver to to make us a less segregated city. And, and at least in my lifetime, I felt that most, if not all of these individuals have sort of under delivered. Mm. And now you are here just a few months ago, we're probably polling at 2% and now you're in the runoff. What do you think that says about your campaign and how do you distinguish yourself as someone who can ultimately keep those promises? Mm -hmm. Well, I, one of the things that I believe that it says very clearly that people trust me and believe me, mm -hmm. and not just because I've said it, because I've done it. You know, I'm not promising things that we haven't already delivered. You know, I worked hard to organize across the city with organizers for an elected representative school board. You know, the district council races that just were completed, you know, part of a larger coalition to make sure that there's real accountability and um, a groundswell of accountability for policing with actually elected um, leaders. Um, same thing around environmental justice, right? Working alongside the organizers who who worked to stop a toxic, you know, waste company from being dumped on the southeast side of Chicago. I've been a part of a hunger strike with Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor. Like I didn't show up with petitions in October, right? You know, I've been a part of a movement that predates me putting on a suit and having a crispy line. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, I'm not, I'm not providing, um, like a, um, a vision that I have not been willing to throw down and organize alongside of people, you know, with. I think the last thing is, you know, there's a great deal of credibility that's coming from someone who's raising a family in Austin on the west side of Chicago, that I've been very vulnerable talking about my children and having to go outside of the community and understanding, excuse me, <coughs> and understanding the perils of having to actually have an application process for a system that should be free or that is ostensibly free, right? So, you know, it's humbling, don't get me wrong, and there's a lot of work to be done and Many of, most of that work is going to happen afterwards, and we actually have to be able to demonstrate that we can run on a platform before we can start to move towards governance. Can you win on it first? Yeah. Right? And once we prove that and demonstrate that, then that other work kicks in. Are you self-conscious about your smile? Do you only allow yourself a closed mouth grin? Well, with Aligner Experts, there's no reason for you to diminish your smile. As orthodontists, they have the privilege of witnessing the remarkable transformation of patient smiles, which often translates into a profound boost in their confidence. Yet, there always seems to be a deterrent. I ain't got the time, I don't have the funds. Luckily, Aligner Experts is redefining convenient and accessible clear aligner solutions. With customizable treatments, transparent pricing, and their cutting edge 3D scanners and dental monitoring technology, you can transform your smile through the convenience of your own schedule. Stop in at their West Loop or Lakeview Clinic today for your complimentary smile assessment. Aligner Experts your destination for advanced clear aligner solutions. P.S. They got another clinic on the way, so stay tuned for their Old Town location.
a lot of this election, a lot of your platform has centered around the future of public goods, mm. which are disproportionately used by low-income black and brown folks, uh, but are you know, kind of clearly under-resourced. You talk about uh, public schools are under-resourced. When you talk about public transit, it's, it's unreliable. The conversation of public safety is at the top of a lot of people's concerns. I kind of want to move through some of those policy areas real quickly with you. And I understand that you're very nuanced, that if we invest in education, we invest in community, we invest in young people, that we can ultimately right these wrongs and fix these systems. But when you think about your immediate plan for CTA reliability, what does that look like both in the short term and also as you start to think through a four-year term as mayor? Yeah, well, look, the reason why I just think it's important that we lay out why public transportation is important. As a social studies teacher, you know, one of the you know, sparks of the civil rights movement, right? That was on a bus, right? So public transportation is very, very much connected and tethered to our overall struggle for black liberation. I mean, we can have something as simple as making sure that the schedule is actually reliable and accurate. I mean, that's something we can figure out right away. Whether we can get all systems to clicking on, on all cylinders on day one, um, that is to be determined, but we know we can at least post a schedule so people know what time it really is, right? When, when you think about thing, that, though, is that an IT decision? Is that a leadership decision? It's because it's they've leadership. announced like three schedule updates in the last, you know, eighteen months, but people are still constantly saying, "I'm getting ghosted by by the bus. The train is not showing up." So, you know, how do we? you know, address a system that you believe is is sort of one of those day one focuses that should be an easy fix. What what do you what do you think that is? I don't want to say it's easy. I, I understand right, right. What you, mean. you know, what I will say though it is a leadership and it is a technical decision as well, right? That we make sure that our systems are updated. And I've said that in all of my plans, right? There's actually cost savings attached to um, upgraded IT tech systems is something that I've worked on on the County Board of Commissioners, modernizing our systems, saving money, and then there's more of an accurate report. Um, the, but the other thing that we can do immediately <clears throat> in our transition to really look at the projects that have been on hold or incomplete. You know, I've had my own share of frustration, like what's a bus only lane, right? Is it just with the white stripe? Is it with the white stripe plus colored bus only on the actual concrete, right? So making real clear distinction where bus only lanes start and end. Like we can finish those projects. We can start on making sure that there are traffic signals that give buses preference. Mm -hmm. So that you don't have these jacked up situations at, the, at a red light when you got a car and a bus and then you know everybody's off to the races. It's unsafe, right? But also giving preferences to buses so that they can move quicker through the city. Right, these are things that we can start coordinating even during our transition so that on day one, we're moving towards operation. We're not trying to figure out how to put it together. As a former public school teacher, as an uh, organizer with the Chicago Teachers Union, obviously your, your heart and your history is close to Chicago public schools. But the problem that our system faces is multi-generational and is cumbersome. Everything from uh, uh, school closures we've seen uh, a decade ago to enrollment drop to disinvestment, you know, where do you think we should be immediately placing our attention when it starts to sort of plug that that flood that we're seeing in Exodus from Chicago Public Schools? Making sure that there's actually someone who is the mayor of Chicago who believes in public education. Like I send that signal right away. Like when I'm sworn in, I'm dropping my kids off to Chicago Public Schools. 
that next day, like they, they're gonna miss that day on the 15th. Like they hanging out with me, right? <laughs> um, but I'm dropping them off, right? When was the last time a mayor of the city of Chicago dropped their children off to a public school? I, don't, I can't think of the last administration who did that, right? Dang, for real, I don't even know who the last, yeah, I mean, Harold didn't have children, Jane Byrne, I don't, know if she, I don't know if her daughter, right? So that's day one, right? Also, um, we will begin to move on um, the budget for Chicago Public Schools basically day one for my administration, right? Because you have to have it set by August, I believe. So when you say move, you mean starting to sort of take last year's budget and make and decisions for And then begin to make a decision year. for the next gotcha. school year, right? And so one of the first things we do day one is embrace the funding formula model that we organized to get done in Springfield. Like that happens immediately. That puts us in a position to receive conservatively $1 billion more. Like that's real money that's available day one by just embracing the law. Um, and then also making a commitment to sustainable community schools. Like there's nothing that prevents Chicago public schools from moving towards more and additional sustainable community schools, which we have 20 models right now that are working. One of the schools that I talk about a lot, Byler Elementary, it was on Rom's list to be closed or Ken Griffin's list, whoever you're talking to. Um, and we saved it. It is now a model school. Mental health services there. You have a community-based organization that's um, partnered with the school. Suspensions have gone down, gone down to your point about enrollment decline. Enrollment has gone up, so suspensions are down. Enrollment has has gone up. There are community gardens that are gardens that are being built outside of the building. There's an entire beautification. There's restorative justice there. Parents are participating, involved. You know what I mean? So like this is not magic, don't get me wrong, but it actually turns out if you actually believe in something, mm -hmm. you invest in it. And typically when you invest in something that you believe in, you're gonna make sure that it thrives and grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, people where that Oh, that's yeah. Byler Elementary. I mean, you know, it's Chicago, so you just give cross streets. Right, exactly. Kedzie and Lake, okay. basically. I mean, to stay on that point of funding under-resourced schools, I mean, you're gonna come likely into an administration that sees COVID dollars, for example, drying up. So where is the money gonna come to immediately infuse into these neighborhood schools to sort of make sure that they have some of the resources that we're speaking about, you know, within a couple of, uh, you know, semesters or years? So we have a couple of years still. Plus, as we embrace the funding formula, that's a collective responsibility to all of us to make sure that we go to Springfield together and to say, yo, you know, give us what's ours. Yeah, right. we, we and, need some more. Well, and well, it's not so much that um, it's an ass about what we need. We know that we need, we're talking about what's owed to us. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of lining up, you know, all of our principles, that's our Senate president, our speaker, the elected officials, the governor, you know, to move towards the type of solvency and equity that we say that we want. And we do want it. I believe there's a real commitment to it. But it's just a matter of, of us working collectively together to make sure that the city of Chicago receives the dollars that it deserves so that we can start to move towards the type of healing and the restoration, as you've described, and you're right, that are decades old. Yeah. And then we've talked a little bit about transit. We've talked about schools. I appreciate you working to break those down. But one place we have to talk about is public safety. And you and I both know when I when I say that, I would hope that we meant something or mean something more comprehensive, right? Because when I think of public safety, I'm also thinking about the environmental health of our neighborhoods. You know, where, where are the grocery stores, where are the, the hospitals and the clinics in our neighborhoods? But often this conversation, as I watch the debates, as I watch the forum, that conversation is, Commissioner Johnson, 
what is your relationship to police? And so when you think about public safety, one, how do you make sure we're continuing to have a nuanced conversation? But I have to ask, what is your plan for the police budget, um, for retention and, and things like that? Yeah, well, I think it's important that we lay out what public safety is, and public safety is definitely economic development and the prevention of crime from taking place. If a public safety plan is about how many cops you have stationed up, you're talking about an occupation plan. You're not talking about a public safety plan. I don't believe there's anyone in the city of Chicago that wants to be, to, to be occupied, right? So no, in terms of the- I don't, I don't know about that. We can't speak for every neighborhood. Some people want more private security in their neighborhood in addition to the cops in their neighborhood. And I, I don't believe most people want that. Well, let me take that back. I, yeah. There are clear neighborhoods, clear constituencies inside of our city that do desire to see more police officers, uh, more private security, regardless if we call that occupation or, or public safety. I believe that the preference would be the type of economic development that would not require that type of response to living. Um, you know, I, I get the reaction, you know, and it's a reaction that is tethered to fear. So the question is, do we want the reaction to fear or do we want to eliminate the fear? And that's really the type of like process that I've been going through, not just as a candidate, but as someone who's raising a family in a beautiful community, but there are more homicides over the last four years in, in Austin than communities combined all the way through, through the North Shore, right? That's been documented in another publication, right? So the relationship has to be about like what's smart policing in Chicago? And what does that look like for you? Because over the life of the administration, we saw every year the police budget climb while individuals on, on both sides claim they weren't getting what they needed. You had people on the police side who say, well, we're, we're 1,600 officers down over a decade prior. And then you have people in the organizing community who say, well, well now we have a police budget that's ballooned to $2 billion while you know pundits say we're in the middle of this, this huge uptick in crime. And so what what is your plan for, for the police budget? I've heard you say that, you know, you don't plan to defund it. You don't necessarily plan to raise it. Do you think where it is now is, is sort of in a, just an adequate place for it to stay throughout your, your time as mayor? I think what the police budget is telling us right now is that we have to be smart about our deployment, right? And so right now, law enforcement rank and file members don't know who their supervisor is every single day. You know, we have supervisors who supervise supervisors. There's, there's inconsistency there. So if someone who reports to work every single day will have a different supervisor every day. That's, um, that, that, that causes chaos and lack of direction. It's like as a teacher, if I were to go to school, um, go to work and there's a different principal every day, right? That's just, that's unmanageable, right? So, you know, my reference around policing is making sure that you know, our rank and file to sergeant staff ratio reflects national averages so that there's consistency there. The second thing is that it's the consent decree, right? Policing in the city of Chicago can't be reformed and transformed if we're not even upholding the law that we have been, you know, essentially like accountable to. It's grateful, I'm grateful to have the support of the top law enforcement officer in the entire state of Illinois, the attorney general. We talked this through about you know, making sure, like we actually need someone to come in and d determine if the ratio that we have in law enforcement is the actual right staffing for the city of Chicago, right? Because we are spending more per capita than Los Angeles and New York, and they don't have the type of violence 
um, that we are experiencing in the city of Chicago. And the question, of course, still remains, are we any safer, right? And so the consent decree is, is, is important that we actually implement that spend and invest in constitutional policing. The third thing, of course, we have red flag laws, laws, laws that are on the books that we're not enforcing. That does require some investment. And data has proven over and over again, if you want to prevent violence from happening, and this is why this is a part of my public safety plan, is that youth employment, youth employment, there's a direct correlation between youth employment and violence reduction. These are measures that we have not tried. I mean, literally, we have not invested in them. Right? We have tried it one way and it's not working. What I'm saying is that it has to be comprehensive. There are immediate things that I can do day one, working with the district council members, having a superintendent who's tethered to the community who comes from the rank and file, right? working with violence prevention organizations that specialize in this type of work, bringing people together. That's what I have a unique skill to do as an organizer. You gotta collaborate with people because a public safety plan um, that is not tethered to the community with all institutions playing a part that includes, that includes our business community, then you're not serious about putting together a comprehensive plan. I am serious and it's gotta be smart. I want to talk about what your first 100 days as mayor would look like, and I don't mean, you know, eating all eating the you know the food throughout the summer at every summer festival, yeah, but also yeah. some of those major ordinances that you want to get through. One being uh, the treatment not trauma, which is an ordinance to use vacant police salaries for social workers and medical specialists on nonviolent uh, mental health related calls, but also the Bring Chicago Home plan, which is largely a taxation plan to sort of grow our tax base uh, to play for critical resources. How do you think those two ordinances are not only gonna get passed in your first 100 days, but what type of immediate impact can they have? Well, being a part of the legislative branch and having been an organizer, um, it's about building relationships, right? It's about taking the conversation directly to the community. And so I'm confident that the, 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 the city of Chicago will be voting for a mayor who has been transparent about how to make the sitter better, stronger, and safer. And so we get to take that right to the people. It's not just about getting the city council to vote for these measures. It's about making sure that we are organizing the city of Chicago around the values in which they elected me on. And so, yes, that's going to take some work. We'll get it done, though. But, I believe in terms of the... In some ways, I don't mean to cut you off, sorry, I apologize. You're, you're good. But it will require at the end of the day, city council to vote. And I was sitting down with an individual a few weeks ago who says the current way city council is set up, right? 50 older people really focused on these small wards creates a system in which they are ultimately going to ask themselves, how does this benefit my ward? We've seen mayoral candidates promise to do things that don't get through city council. And then we listen to years of them saying, well, I wanted to do it, but but city council wouldn't vote for it. I wonder, are we maybe setting ourselves up with these two really, you know, expansive ordinances for a situation in which in a few months you're just telling us, well, city council didn't want my plans to go through. You know this now that city council might not want them to go through. So how do you plan to sort of work against that? We don't plan to work against it. We plan to work together and towards it. Right. Look, I've been a part of the legislative branch of government, so I'm aware of how the relationships that you build and formulate will ultimately move us towards a collective goal. No one in the city council 
wants 65,000 people to be without homes. No one wants that. I feel very confident about the city council being committed to making sure that we are addressing the unhoused crisis. I'm also very confident that no one wants another Betty Jones to be murdered because they're responding to a mental health crisis by their neighbor. Who, who wants a resident to be gunned down because they're having a mental health crisis? So because we know what we want and we know what we want to prevent, we're already starting from a place of advantage. As far as the legislative process that you have to go through, no one thought we can have an elected representative school board. We have been talking about that for years. This generation got it done. No one thought that we would have elected people who are responsible for like public safety in the city of Chicago. Got it done. When I got to the County Board of Commissioners, four years before I had gotten there, there were advocates who were pushing for the just housing ordinance that would eliminate discrimination against those who were formerly incarcerated. I got it done in four months. Now, I'm not saying that everything happens because you snap your finger, but if you're asking me, do I know how to get it done? Yes. If you're asking me whether or not you think I'll get it done, well, I'm a middle school teacher. I'm a middle child. Of course the glass is always half full for me. I mean, I was polling at 2.8%. I could have quit then, but yeah, here I be. I mean, you stand on the shoulders of, of a deep political history. And you know this as a social studies teacher, John Jones, first mm. black elected official in Chicago was a county commissioner. Mm. The first black congressperson elected in the modern era was Oscar Stanton DePriest. Mm. His political career started as a county commissioner. Mm. You are hoping to be the first black man elected since Harold Washington 40 years ago. What have you learned from your predecessors, both political officials, but also the organizers uh, whose shoulders you stand on as well? Tell the truth and um, don't be surprised by um, the dog whistling, right? Harold Washington, people say you better elect the other guy before it's too late. You know, that if you elect Harold Washington, city's gonna be out of control. They also said that Harold Washington, they didn't use the word defund, but it was the same, um, you know, it was the same attack against him that he was anti-police, right? And so this is why you have to read. This is why you have to pay attention, y'all, in your social studies classes. Pay attention to your history teachers, right? Because some of the stuff that you endure, you won't ever think that you're the only one who's experienced it. And so if, you know, to your previous question, this is why I'm incredibly optimistic. Like if I'm going through this, which is very similar to what, you know, other black transformational figures had to endure, you know, why would I expect anything less? Right. And so, you know, the Republican Party has said very clear that Joe Biden was going to defund the police. The Republican Party said that Governor J.B. Pritzker was going to defund the police. The Republican Party said that Nancy Pelosi is going to defund the police. Right. The Republican Party is now, you know, casting the same lie on me that they do on all individuals who fly under the Democratic you know, flag. Right. And the same forces you know, that said that Harold Washington did not have the experience or the expertise. Um, the same forces that, you know, said that he would, you know, not be ready to, to lead. You know, it's the same attack, right? So it gives me tremendous comfort, honestly, that the attacks that um, those who have come before me, the shoulders in which I stand on, that those same attacks are coming towards me, which means I'm gonna be just fine. Mm -hmm. You have time for two more questions? 
two more. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Anybody been paying attention? To more <laughs> How about so. one, and then we need to get the <laughs> uh, Austin answers. Yep. All right. Um, one major point of criticism that has come out in this campaign season is your taxation plan. And you've announced your goal is to not raise property taxes. I know that you have to hit that one hard. That's one that you consistently go to. But you have announced plans to, you know, increase some taxes on hotel accommodations, on on airports, on, you know, sort of mansion tax, which really is any real estate transfer over a million dollars commercial or residential in the city. One how can you promise not to raise property taxes? And two, if you know the plan to to sort of raise those others fall through, where are we gonna get that money from? I'm not gonna ignore it because it's it's weighing down our economy and the type of investments that we need to make for long term sustainability. We have to fix the, fix the structural deficit. I'm gonna do that. Um, and not raising property taxes, I mean, that's important, right? Because for too long in this city, that's been the, the go-to. It's been the only to go-to um, to fund the government, and then there's no return on that investment. And it's because so they don't have a powerful lobbyists, right? Hotels industry has lobbyists that'll say, I'm gonna fight that tax, just like we watched and that. And so now the, the people of Chicago, now the people, people of Chicago has a mayor who will lobby on behalf of working people. Hmm. I'm um, good with that. I, honestly, I liked how you, how you flipped that one at the end and said he was gonna be a lobbyist for the people. That was good. Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson I want to thank you for sitting down with City Cash Chicago. Again, the runoff election is April 4th. Regardless of who you're choosing as your candidate for mayor, make sure you make it to the polls. Check out the Chicago Board of Elections website to see where you can vote in your neighborhood. Thank you again, Brandon Johnson. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. April 4th, y'all. We have asked Paul Vallis several times for an interview on CityCast Chicago and will continue to do so. But there are some opportunities to see him and Johnson this week. Paul Vallis will be with Block Club Chicago at Talia Hall in Pilsen today at 3 p.m. And both candidates will be together at a debate tomorrow at 6 p.m. on CBS and again Thursday at 6 p.m. at the Logan Center for the Arts in Woodlawn. There's some good news to get you through. I want to give a huge happy birthday to my mother. Shout out to Mama T. I love you very much. I want to thank you for everything you've done for me, for my siblings, for the entire family. And I hope that you're enjoying yourself in Arizona. It's time to celebrate you. You, Mama. Brandon Johnson gave us his neighborhood guide to Austin. You can read his things to eat, see, and do in Wednesday's Hey Chicago newsletter. So if you're not already subscribed, make sure you do so now at chicago.citycast.fm. We're going to be here same time tomorrow. Hopefully you'll join us. Peace. Ninety-six. Forty-five. Hey, am I slouching in those photos? I just thought about it. Are you fine? Cause she been getting on me. I just thought about that. I guess. They get on me everything about everything. Okay. Okay. We're good to go. Jacoby's taking it. You want me to hold it or you got it? No, no, okay. Okay. All right.